Hello and welcome to this week's episode of The Dude Therapist. We have a great show for you about simplicity and minimalism, something I never really thought would be practical in our lives, but is really attainable. And this week, we're chatting with Dr. Danae Barahona, and she is a loving wife and a mama of two. She partners with families to tackle the challenges of raising children. Danae is a minimalist who claims to be a decluttering expert. Don't let her near your closet. She loves to travel, talk health and wellness, and give unsolicited advice. She has been featured on the likes of the Today Show, Real Simple, Netflix, The Wall Street Journal, and numerous other media outlets. Danae holds a PhD in child development and is a clinical social worker like myself with a specialty in child and family practice. Let's get into this really important and interesting conversation. Welcome to this week's episode of The Dude Therapist. You know, I always talk about how I love watching documentaries. I'm a big documentary guy. And I was watching a documentary, um, The Minimalists, and I also read their book. It was sent to me for free to review and and kind of share. And this amazing person came on and I, got, I, got, I had to reach out. So today we have Danae Barahona, who's the creator of Simple Families, all about what it means to live a simple life and that not being a bad thing but actually being a successful, great thing for families and parents. So before I steal all the thunder from who she is, can you please introduce yourself to the listeners? Sure. Thank you so much for that warm welcome, Eli. Yes, my name is Danae. I'm the founder of Simple Families. Um, Simplicity is not something that ever came naturally to me. It's been a lot of hard work over the past, I don't know, probably seven or eight years. My family has really been on this journey. Um, my educational and work background is actually that I have a bachelor's and master's in clinical social work. And then I went on to do a PhD in child development. And I was doing my PhD while I had, while I was pregnant with my first and then finished up my dissertation while I was pregnant and just had my second. And during that time, becoming a new mom, as you might imagine, I was really interested in what the research said about you know, how do we give our kids best possible outcomes? And I found that so much of that research is really connected with living a simpler, slower, more intentional life. And that's really the journey that we've been on. Well, I love that. So are you, you're a doctor, right? You're a PhD, you're a doctor. Are you also, you said you're a social worker, right? I am. Yes. So you have an LMSW, an LCSW, or you just LCSW. Awesome. Me too. We're twins. Yeah. There you go. Um, and, and you know, you're like the third person I've had on the show that has an LCSW and a PhD. Um, and I find that combination so great because I think they they um, interact very nicely and are different at the same time to give you different flavors of who you are and your trainings and expertise. I think it's amazing that you're able to, to do that. Um, and good for you. That's amazing that you were able to do that. I would not be able to go back to school again. Um, like just the thought of it when I finished my LCSW exam, I'm like I'm done with tests for the rest of my life. Never again. Right. Uh, you um, know, I don't, don't never say never. No, I love <laughs> That's school. That's what I said when I was I done I love too. education. I love knowledge. I read and I'm always researching and learning. I'm just not really the, uh, the homework kind of guy. Um, right. You know, I, that's, that's the totally hard part for that. me. Um, <laughs> I found after I, I finished and I was working as a clinician, a master's level clinician, I found that there were so many questions unanswered that I had and that 
I, I never had been interested in research, but I was like, you know what? I, I want to create more and do things that are impactful that aren't in existence yet. And to do that, I need to go on. Be in a place that can allow that. Right. Mm -hmm. So I want to just jump right in because I have a lot of questions as a parent myself, um, of a beautiful two-year-old daughter. I, um, I love this idea of the simplicity of life, but I want to just clarify what that means because I think people are afraid by, of that word. When people think simple. They might think you can't have things, you can't do things, you can't be things. Can you kind of give a perspective of what simple life really means? Yeah. So my life never felt simple. I'm someone who is prone to anxiety and prone to move quickly, whether it's walking quickly or talking quickly, thinking quickly, um, just always living life at a faster pace. I think pace, I think that's my natural tendency, along with collecting a lot of stuff, a lot of clutter. Um, since I was a young child, one of my most um one of the memories from childhood that stands out the most is my mom nagging me to clean my room and just having this perpetual problem of having a messy room. And my messiness, it followed me through my childhood into college. My college roommate can attest and into my marriage. And I always viewed it as this sort of fundamental lacking or fundamental problem within me because I could never resolve it. It's, you know, it's just like, I just, it's just who I am. I am just messy my life feels messy. My room feels messy. My house feels messy. Um, and I just felt like that was part of my identity. It became, and when I became a new mom, I actually stumbled into a Montessori class with my son when he was eight weeks old. We, um, it was right across the street from my house. And even though I was doing my PhD in child development, I didn't know anything about Montessori. Um, but I, I walked into the classroom and anyone that's been in a Montessori classroom knows that it is extremely simple, very basic, especially, um, for very young children. So I walked into a Montessori classroom and I sat down and I felt that, space that that room that had a lot of white space and a lot of peace and a lot of order and i was like you know i don't know what this is or how to get here but i want some type of this at home i want that peace and i want that calm and order for my family for my new child and i i never aspired to create a montessori classroom at home but i wanted to kind of bottle up that feeling of tranquility and and in some way integrate it into our household and yeah, that and kind of know, led me on a path to minimalism. So yeah, and there is a piece, you know. I, I know growing up, um, I, I do have a lot of things, um, uh, and I'll be the first one to admit I have too many T-shirts, too much, too much uh, athleisure wear. You know, I love that stuff where I sit around the house. It's my like chill clothes. It's my comfort. It's my my calm. And I, and I, I'll be the first one to admit that I have to give away and donate and and throw away a lot of things. And I have over the years. Moving helps, you know, moving helps when you have to purge a little bit and be like, whoa, I have this many box of this, um, uh, which is what was in the documentary when they were packing up his mother's house. And they're like, oh, my gosh, I have 18 boxes of just tchotchkes and things like who needs that? Um, but here's here's the thing that I, I find very calm is that when you actually clean your house, when you put things in their right place and you have the space to put them there, there is this sense of calm and clarity of just things being calm, peaceful, and clean. Now, it doesn't mean you can't have things. It means you have the things that you need and will use 
not overabundance of, well, I might use it one day, so I might as well just have it because who knows? And then you use it once in your entire life and never use it again. Now, the question that I really have is because what really drew me to your your expertise and when I saw you on the on the documentary and I started looking into your content was really its connections to family and parenting. You know, I've read a lot of books and I, I'm certified and work in trauma. And one of the things that is traumatic can be chaos, right? It's the chaos and the uncertainty of the a lot, the energy in a house. Is that what we're talking about here? Can that be something that can be fixed through simple and minimalistic life regarding the chaos? Is that what maybe can be undertone that talks about the development of children? How does simple life help with development of kids is what my question really is. I think that the connection between physical and mental clutter can seem a little hard to understand. And I don't think it's clear cut, you know, line A to B in any circumstance. Um, But I know for me that the stuff accompanied the mental clutter and it all was interwoven and simplifying one was had a trickle down effect on simplifying the other. Um, and I have seen firsthand just working with thousands of families over the years, how much it benefits simplifying the physical stuff and the mental stuff benefits families and does bring peace and harmony. And and I use those words, peace and harmony loosely, because anytime you're raising a home and you have young kids, <laughs> peace and harmony looks different than it might if you were a single individual living alone. Um, but s- simplicity and living with less has been something that, well, first of all, I never thought that it was possible for me. I mean, this idea that everything has a place. I think Marie Kondo talked about that in her book, um, you know, f- create a home where everything has a place so you know where to put it away. I was like, that could never happen for me. That's where I was at. It was just like there, I have way too much stuff. There's no way I could have a space for everything. Mm-hmm. And that felt so overwhelming to me. And in the process, because I didn't know where anything was in my house, there was a lot of frustration that was born out of that. You know, if you've ever struggled to find your keys in the morning, like, especially if you have kids, now you're ready. You finally got their shoes on, you finally getting them out the door and then you can't find your keys. And then you're yelling at your kids. Like, it's just like, boom, 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 (laughs) one thing to the next. And we're, we're right now in a smaller house. We sold our, we downsized in a big way this year and from about a 3000 square feet right now we're renting an 1100 square foot house. And, um, one of my favorite things that was unexpected to me was that we have a tiny table to eat at. And every day when I wipe it down after dinner, it only takes like five seconds to wipe the Mm -hmm. table down and Mm -hmm. thinking about how much time I'm saving by having less stuff, by having less space. Um, and that frees up a lot of not just time, but mental energy for me too. Mm -hmm. Um, I know that, the more time, the more time that I spend picking up my stuff and tidying my house, the more exhausted I feel at the end of the day, the more frustrated I feel when my kids leave something out of place. So I, I do find that there is a connection, especially when you have a home with children who aren't quite picking up after themselves quite yet, maybe not for several years, um, that a lot that even if you felt like you were in control of things before, you have to start to let go of a lot of that control. Um, and I think in simplifying the space, it's it's a little bit easier. It was easier to do that for me. Yeah. And I want to make it also, I, I like to clarify this because if you're listening, you're like, oh, this sounds like very OCD and, and it's not, this is not an obsessive compulsive thing. This is a 
harmonious, peaceful style of living. Um, and it's so important because, you know, just the way you were talking about the keys, you know, um, uh, we added like hooks by the door where all the keys go so that we know that when we're done, we oh, the keys, every, when we come into the house and we're done driving or somewhere, the keys go right there. So there is no scrambling or running or looking. We know they're there. And the funny thing is, is that just talking about this idea of being simple gives me anxiety because the question I have is, how do you start? Right? Because it sounds really nice. It sounds really wonderful to live with less. Um, and it doesn't mean that you're lacking in life. I want to keep clarifying that living with less does not mean you're lacking in life and don't have enough dishes and don't have enough clothes and don't have enough. You have just the right amount. That's the key. You have just the right amount. But for someone who's never embraced that or is afraid to take that step, how do you start that? Because to me, that brings so much more anxiety than just the living in the life that I have already. Yeah. So the way that I found works best for me is really focusing on function. And my partner would probably argue with me on this because he's more about focusing on aesthetics and likes things to look beautiful. And I'm like, this, this space has to work for me. If it doesn't work for me, then it doesn't matter if it looks beautiful. Um, so I think there, there is a balance in between that, but creating a functional space if if your if your space isn't functional it might mean that you know everything is everywhere nothing has its place what the way that i encourage people to begin is to think about creating an active space what stuff in your house do you actively use and here's an example of this i used to have probably 25 pairs of jeans but i only ever wore two so every time i went into my closet to get a pair of jeans I would have to dig through 23 pairs of jeans to find the pairs that I wanted to wear. So when I got rid of those 23 pairs of jeans, I only had two left, the only two that I wear. And I never missed those 23 pairs that I was keeping just in case, which I actually never wore. Um, But it freed up not only physical space, but also mental space. I'm no longer digging through all that unworn stuff. And when we keep only the things that we're actively using, we can really see what we have. And we're never like, oh, you know, I don't have anything to wear because you see the things that you have in front of you. You're only keeping the things that you love, keeping the things that fit you and that you feel good in. And it's much easier to get dressed in the morning. And um, our kids, it's the same way for our kids. You know, I think we have so many kids that are inundated with toys and a lot of toys that they never even touch. If they have 200 toys and we scale it back to 20, we often find that kids play better with those remaining 20 toys because it's easy to see them. It's easier to find all the pieces. It's easier to get things out and to put it away. So it's it's interesting that we, we ha- I think as parents, especially we buy extra toys because we think it's going to keep our kids busy. And that's that's definitely not true. It might keep them busy for the first 10 minutes when it's new and shiny, but then it just gets thrown into a pile where kids forget about it. And is this is this an American thing more than other no. countries? I mean, more than other countries, yes. But like the idea of definitely... overabundance of buying and having and needing and wanting. Like you're talking about the jeans. I literally have a drawer behind me with about seven pairs of jeans that I haven't worn because they don't fit me anymore, hoping that if I lose a little few pounds here that I can now fit in the, the seven jeans that I, I, I did wear in rotation. But there is this need to keep, 
to hold on to. Um, I, like I said, I have so many t-shirts that I have on rotation. I wear them all the time, but I also have long sleeve shirts, button downs for occasions. I have this for that and this for that. I live in New York and in New York, you know, there's so many different weather styles that the idea is so consuming of like, well, who knows if it, if it rains, I need these kind of shoes. And if it snows, I need this. And if it's this weather or that weather, but it doesn't mean you have to have 15 of each. You can have one or two of each. And there is this idea of this, this, not, not that you're lacking. I keep wanting, or we keep repeating that because you have what you need and it makes it easier to do and to be. And what I have done actually, and my wife and I have done for our daughter is we have a rotation of, 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 uh, 20 toys. Like, cause people were uh, in-laws, grandparents, whatever it is, are buying a lot of toys for our daughter. So what we do is we kind of swap them out. We have a closet that's organized with all the toys and we swap out different toys of different ages or different things to create. We have the toys and we kind of create this environment of only, these are the only ones that we're going to actively be playing with. Because if you have all 200 in one space, that's just not possible. She's not going to play with it. And in the end, it makes a huge mess because she wants to throw things around and have a good time. And the same thing goes with her clothes. Like we put them in containers and put them in storage away. Um, for if we have, when we have future children and all these kind of things, there's a way that we can keep our space calm. And there's so much science behind the calmness of our space physically and the calmness in our brain. Um, what are some signs that, that someone can notice that things are getting out of hand for them in their external world, the physical world that's impacting their internal life? How do we kind of start, you know, you talk, you talked about where do you start physically and start doing it? But how do you even know that it's a problem for you and impacting you? Because this might not be a problem for everyone. It's an ideal for maybe the world to be a little simpler. That would be a lot helpful for so many people. Um, but how about for the person who's actually struggling? How do they how do they know? What are the things that they, that would, they would be aware of? Yeah, I think just spend time in a space in each room in your house and ask yourself how it feels. I think that often, especially you know, we look at our kids' play area or their toy room, and if you walk into that play area or toy room and it feels messy and overwhelming to you, you can bet for sure that it is messy and overwhelming for your child who is much more easily overstimulated. So I always say there's no magic number of toys or of clothes, but if you go into that space, your closet or the playroom, and you say that this it, it feels busy and it feels chaotic, then it's still too much for you. So I kind of look for a gut check on how does it feel to be in the space? Because I do think that we all have a different level of tolerance. And, you know, as you mentioned, like toy rotation, like bringing in new toys and storing away toys or clothes and bins and that kind of thing that can work really well for some people never worked for me though, because I would, I tried it. I put the toys in bins and then I never rotated. I just had a closet full of other toys. Um, so I think if you're someone who's really diligent about rotating toys and rotating clothes, that kind of thing. But to me, that takes extra effort too. And I'm all about function. So it just isn't something that I want to put the extra effort in to do. So we have mm -hmm. to figure out, you know, how does your brain work? What does, do you remember to do that kind of thing? Are you motivated to do that kind of thing? And I think it can work for some people to keep more and to keep it out of your active space. So, you know, like even if you keep those seven pairs of jeans that don't fit, put them away. So you don't have to look at them every day. So they're not in the drawer that you open every single day because our clothes speak to us. You know, like every time you look at those seven pairs of jeans, they're telling you something. They're saying, you're not the right size. Go to the gym, like get yourself together. So I think we also have to remind ourselves of that, especially 
especially when it comes to clothes, because I think sometimes their clothes can trash talk us a little bit. <laughs> I've never heard someone put clothes talking, but it's a hundred percent true. I do have it hidden away. And that gut check that you just talked about, I had it recently where we moved, we left our apartment. We moved in with my parents to save money for a house. And we packed up a lot of our stuff and put it in storage and we're surviving on the stuff that we picked. But there's, if you look at our storage unit, there's so much freaking stuff. There's so much clothes. Now, I, I I love to read. I have a huge library of books. So a majority of the boxes are books, which I love as resources, which I don't really have as much anymore. Um, and that's okay because I'm reading new books. I'm not referring to them for resource. But I said to my wife recently, I said, you know what? It's funny. I had about 15 pairs of sweatpants and now I have like four and I'm surviving and doing great. Why did I have so many sweatpants, sweatshirts, you know, or, or this clothes or that thing? Like why, why? Because it's hard to get rid of perfectly yeah. good things. Yeah. yeah. And, it's and not, I, they're not ruined. They're, they're great. Yeah. They're like, they're totally fine and, and quality stuff. Right. And you know what? That is a wonderful thing to donate because there are so many people out there that would appreciate those mm -hmm. great pieces that they don't have. Yep. You know, there's a homeless person on the street that would love a nice quality sweatshirt or sweater to keep them warm in the winter. Yep. And I think this idea that donation is not trash. Donation is sharing the love, you know, yeah. taking those perfectly good things that you're not using and giving them to somebody else that can put them to use. 100%. I think about this with sentimental things too. Like, you know, I love this little, um, winter set that my kid wore when he was a baby and I want to keep it forever. I can put it into a box for 30 years or I can give it to somebody else and they could be wearing it. Another child could be wearing it. Like, where does this piece of clothing belong in a box for 30 years where it's never seen, never used or on the body of other children that could be staying warm and cozy in it? No, and I love that. And I think one of the things that we try to do for our children is that we pass a lot. Well, I only have one child, but for my family, I have nieces and nephews. Um, and we passed clothes along between us and hopefully the clothes that we have, we put in, you know, we have an area that's very, you know, organized for the next kids and this, that, and the other thing that can happen. You don't need to hold on to your, your baby's clothes for 40 years. It's pointless. If your kids are 20 yeah. years old, like you can throw out your, like you can throw out your clothes. You could donate them. You can do something with them. And donation is not a problem. Donation is a beautiful thing that we can do with our lives. It's giving. It's a simple way to give back. It's a simple way to give to others who don't have, who don't have access to certain things, who can't afford certain things. Now, how do you utilize a simple lifestyle or this minimalistic lifestyle in your relationships? You know, it's not just about the external. How do you do it in your interpersonal things? Yeah. So especially thinking about the parent-child relationship, there are so many times that simplicity comes into play. And back when I was doing my PhD and getting interested in minimalism, I actually had another community and network that was focused on feeding children because that's where my PhD research was on. My PhD research was on looking at the parent approach to feeding children, especially kids under one, and how that impacted eating later on in life. So I was really interested in looking at parent approach to feeding and what parents were doing that could help or hinder their child's ability to eat well later on. And I was writing about this online and I was blogging and I've really enjoyed that. And then I started to become interested in minimalism and simple living. And I, so I started Simple Families and I said, you know, I was like, well, it's just, I feel bummed because now I can't really talk about feeding kids if I'm talking about simple living. 
And then it kind of came full circle for me because I realized that so much of best practice for feeding kids is simplicity, right? If a parent is all up in their kid's business, pushing food into their throat, coaching them like, Hey, one more bite, three more bites, or just try this. Did you like this? How was it? You know, we ask all these questions, we nag, we push, we prod all these things that the research shows does not build good eaters, does not build a good relationship with food. Um, and really the best thing we can do is just step back physically and mentally step back and let our kids eat the things that they are going to eat. You know, we pick the food as the parents, they pick how much they're going to eat, give them some of that control back, minimize our need to control and the number of coaching interactions that we have. All those things lead to raising good eaters. So stepping back and simplifying our approach to feeding is actually good for our kids. And then I found after I made that connection that across the board, so much of that is, is present in parenting. You know, you're at the playground, you let your kid figure their way up the ladder themselves, and then they can figure their way back down. If you put a kid at the top of the ladder, they're not going to know how to get back down. So letting kids come to terms with their own development on the rate that suits them. And a lot of that involves, especially when you are, you tend, you tend towards anxiety, like I do, you know, that's not second nature. Sometimes it takes work to step back and let your kids be and let them grow and flourish without your extra watchful guiding eye every second of the day. <laughs> you know, my wife and I, we really utilize baby led weaning. <laughs> oh, um, I love baby led weaning. Oh, yeah. we loved it. We loved it. And at first when I, my wife, my wife's a dietitian. So when she first pitched this idea to me for our, our newborn baby, uh, I was like, that's ridiculous. Like, what do you mean she's going to eat this because we're eating it? Like, she's going to feed herself? Like, like what? what does that mean? <laughs> like, what about all the aisles of baby food that, uh, like, what about this? What about that? I'm not here to bash any company or anything like that. But I was like, what? I was so taught, like, we feed our kids. We spoon feed them. Ah, here's the airplane. You know, all those, like, things that you see in movies and that parents do all the time. If that's what you want to choose for your kids, I'm not here to bash you. But we decided to do baby led weaning. My daughter eats Brussels sprouts and broccoli and everything in between. She eats, she's not so great with proteins as much, but uh, she loves fruits and vegetables. She eats things that adults don't eat. And it, I sat there once and I said, you're like my wife, I'm like, you're a genius. She's like, no, this is just taking a step back and giving the child the power to choose. Because yeah, why should I go above and beyond and create crazy meals for my daughter or my, or any child if I'm eating it, why can't she eat the food? She's a person. Right. And at the core of baby light weaning, it's just giving them food, putting it in front of them and Parents letting provide, them, let them do it. Right, and it's thing. funny. That's what we do with our animals, right? Like you wouldn't like call your dog over and be like, here's your food, eat it. Two more bites. Like, well, you know, we, <laughs> we're all mammals. We know when there's like, there's sustenance in front of us, we know what to do with it. Um, but I have to say that when we did baby led weaning, I actually had to sit on the other side of the table because it was so hard uh -huh. not to get my hands in there and take control. Yeah. And I have to remind myself of that all the time in parenting. Like I have to sit on the other side of the metaphorical table and step yeah. back because it's not who I am and it's not who society tells me to be. Yes. You know, I think society tells me to be this hands-on, like in your face, helicopter parent, a lot of times, you know, the good moms are always there watching. They're always, they catch everything. They see everything. They're responsive to every need. Mm. And a lot of times our kids need us to step back and they need to make mistakes and fall down and figure things out for themselves. And it, again, doesn't come easy for a lot of us. We uh -huh. have to make the physical space for that to happen. 
you know, recently I've been working with a couple of parents as a, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm private practice and I'm working with a few parents with teenagers that I'm working with. And I, and I read two books that I, I loved, uh, Dr. Um, uh, sorry, not doctor, Julie Lithgott Hames wrote a book called raising adults. Um, she was a Dean at Stanford and writes her experiences of seeing overparent and helicopter parenting with the, the 20, you know, the 18, 19 year olds coming to college and not being able to live their own lives. And the other one is Jessica Leahy, who wrote a book on uh, letting your kids fail, learning how the gift of failure, it's called, right? And I think we're so, and it, I want to make it very clear. I like to clarify things. I think it's my therapist brain coming in. But the idea that you, just because you might not be on top and hands on, quote unquote, as a parent, doesn't mean you're not being supportive, doesn't mean you don't love your kids, doesn't mean you're not there when they need you. It means you're just not in their face. At every second, at every single noise, at every single moment, every single possibility. It means you're giving them the space to live, to grow, to learn, to be. And that's the biggest thing. When my daughter's playing sometimes, I sit on the couch and I just let her be. And if yeah, she asks, Daddy, come play with me, I sit and I play with her. But I'm not sitting going, oh, uh, 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 you know, like it's just, and yeah. then that creates this, this sense of hyper- um, sensitivity, hyper-awareness for the kids. The kids become very anxious or on edge because you are creating that vibe of like, oh, you move this way. Oh, you got hurt. Oh my goodness. Are you okay? But it doesn't mean the same thing with the, with the eating. I have to remind my mom. I'm like, mom, sit back. She can do it. And it's a very active thing that she has to like put her hands underneath her, her legs to not jump in and help her that my daughter knows how to use a spoon and will figure out how to stab something with a fork and put it in her mouth. She is very capable. She needs to learn. And it's so important that we clarify that, that it doesn't mean you suck at parenting. You are a great parent by stepping back and being space and giving space. There's actually a name for it. It's called masterful inactivity. You know, you become a master at being inactive because it's purposeful inactivity. And it's the kind of inactivity that at the playground, if you're sitting on the bench and all the other parents are hovering over their kid on the swings, you feel like they may perceive you as lazy, but you have to remind yourself that actually sometimes it's better if you sit on, sit on the bench and you sit on the sidelines and let them be and let them do for themselves. But it's, for me, it takes a lot of self-talk because I feel like there's a lot of judgment from the other parents on the playground that are hovering when I'm not hovering, but Hey, I'm doing the right thing. I know that it's best, but lots of self-talk up there. (laughs) But the self-talk is so important because it's so easy to judge ourselves as parents. It's so easy to look around at the society that's been created to convince us that a certain thing is is important or healthy when the research and the the therapists and the and the professionals like yourself and myself understand what is actually helpful and healthy for children and sometimes you have to be the the lone soldier or the person who's kind of sticking up for that importance while everyone else is doing the other things that they think are important and healthy i literally have had to talk to so many parents the past month about letting go Letting go and letting your kids be. Don't ping their phone. Don't follow them on the GPS. Don't check their grades. Don't do that. Let them learn to be and grow and fail. And it's their life. It's not yours. They're not part of you. They're not who you are. They might be an extension of your values and how you want to raise them, but they're not you. They're their own person. They need to learn what that means to be their own person. And so that really is the the, the crux of, of the simple life. It's not this idea that you're lacking. I'm sure you go on vacations. I'm sure you enjoy your life with your family. I'm sure you have a great 
life, but it takes hard work. It's easier to sit back and buy, 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 have, 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 be over the top, be on top of things. And just talking about it gives me anxiety, right? Because it's just this, oh my goodness, so much to do. But how do you do that in your romantic life? How do you do that in, in the, the intimacy of the partnership that you have to create that for your family? How do you talk to your partner who maybe might not be on board, who doesn't understand it? And then how does that translate into that, into that relationship as well? Yeah. I always say, stay in your own lane, start with your own stuff. And I think that's so important. I know at first that my husband thought I was crazy. Um, he's more of a natural, natural minimalist at heart, but you touched on two of the things that have always been pain points for him, which are tchotchkes and (laughs) t-shirts. Um, so he, and he's still like, he's he's got the t-shirt thing under control while we're working on the tchotchkes. Um, but I have let him keep, well, I let him, I shouldn't say that, but like I have agreed to not complain about him keeping a lot of the tchotchkes that he has because they're special to him and they're Mm -hmm. meaningful to him. And, you know, finding that balance of, you know, leading by example. And I have helped so many families through this process. And I will tell you over and over again, I hear this question all the time and almost universally it works itself out because when you lead by example, you stay in your own lane, your partner sees the changes that you're making and sees how positive the changes have been in your life and in your mood and overall well-being. And they're like, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm curious about that simplicity stuff you're doing. And sure enough, I mean, sometimes it's a week, sometimes it's a month, sometimes it's a year, but they get on board and you'll find that with extended family too. You know, once people see the positive impact that it's having on your life, that they're going to take interest and take note and probably start going through their own stuff too. And there's so much research behind our surroundings and how they impact us. Even if you go to the extreme, if you look at the research and science behind Vegas, right in the casinos of the color scheme that they use, the sounds, the smells, the the oxygen they pump in, all the external stimulus that help us feel calm and comfortable to want to stay longer, to bet and spend all our money on Vegas, right? There's so much research behind it. Why can't you do that in your own life to create a confident, positive space? And you don't have to have, I know people like to post that so they have that one special room that's the calm room or the yoga room or the, the meditation room, right? It doesn't mean you have to go that extreme with every room in your house to have the idol or, or the, the candles or the, the noise and the music and the sound canceling, but you can create a peaceful home, a calm home, a calm space that when you come back from a hard days of work or life that's stressful, you don't come back into stress, you come back into calm. And I think it's so important what you're doing. I think it's so amazing that this is a a thing that is needed in such a day and age. And the last really question I have is, you know, I have this wonderful technology in my hand, my cell phone, right? And we're so bombarded at all times with emails. I know for me as a therapist, I'm on this list service and that thing to get clients and the, you know, I stopped getting push notifications on my phone. I don't get push notifications. I have to go actually into the app to see if something happens. So it's not this constant stimulation that uh, triggers my my mind and hormones to go, ooh, look, another thing. Ooh, that's so exciting. Hooray. Um, Where I don't become reliant. How do we create that boundary? Because to me, simple life, minimalism is about boundaries, creating boundaries for ourselves. How do we do that with a society and our so much connection to technology? 
I love the quote that says, do things that make you forget about your cell phone. And I think at its <laughs> core, what that is, is developing a replacement behavior because we can easily, it's like, don't think about the elephant in the room. Like put your phone down. Don't use your phone. Don't use your phone. You're using it too much. But the reality is until you find a replacement behavior that you love to do more or you enjoy that can replace your phone, you're not going to forget about your phone. If there's so much dopamine there, you're going to keep coming back to it over and over again. So, you know, if you have three books sitting next to your bed and there are nonfiction books that parenting books that you're supposed to learn something about and, you know, but you haven't like barely touched and you go to your Instagram every night, then put a, put a novel next to your bed, something that you enjoy, something that you want to, you look forward to. So how do we find things that help us forget about our phones. And I think we have to remind ourselves, you can't just stop doing something that's so addicting. You're going to have to find something else to fill that space with and fill that time with. Um, and that's kind of, that's usually how I approach it. Thank you for uh, totally reminding me how many books I have on my, on next to <laughs> my bed, next to my bed untouched or, you know, with my ADHD, I start like three books at the same time. Yeah. Um, uh, but uh I really love what you're doing, and I think it's so important for the world that we live in for our families and specifically for ourselves, which impacts our family life and our own lives. So where can people find you? Where can they access your knowledge, your insight, your expertise? Where can they get in touch with you? Yeah, you can visit on my website, simplefamilies.com, or you can find me on Instagram, simple underscore families. Um, I'd love to chat with you. Um, I have a podcast as well. You can find it, Simple Families, wherever podcasts are listened to. Amazing. Thank you so much. I truly appreciate you taking the time today and really, really amazing, amazing work. Thank you so much. All right. That was great. Thank you so much to listening to this week's episode of The Dude Therapist. And it only is happening because of you, the listeners, tuning in every week, even twice a week to this show all about mental health, relationships, and wellness topics. And really, let's be honest, everything in between. And I'm so excited to show up every time and having great guests. So thank you. And if you have any questions, concerns, ideas, collaborations, email me at thedudetherapist at gmail.com. Follow me on Instagram at thedudetherapist. Let me know what you're thinking. Let me know your ideas can't wait to hear from you. And if you can go along, subscribe, rate, review on all the streaming sites that you're listening on. I truly appreciate it because that's what make this thing happen. So thanks for tuning in this week and see you next time on the Dude Therapist podcast. We've got more guests and more great content coming your way.